Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our time. We thank you that we can look into your word today. I praise, praise you, Lord, for being so good and gracious to us. We praise that we look at eschatology again, that you would help us to think clearly on the text. We pray, Heavenly Father, for the sermon today and for our meeting, that all the things we would say and do are pleasing to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, say, I want to just mention... Before I forget, Christy had wanted us to take all of our possessions and go upstairs after the Sunday school because they've got a set up for a, I think it's a wedding, isn't that right, Bob? I don't know what they're, they're setting up for something, Sar Shalom is, so we have to get all of our possessions, even our coats have to be upstairs because we can't come back down because they'll be setting up. So I wanted to say that before I forget. The other thing is hold on to your PowerPoint for Proverbs. We will be doing that and Chapter 4 next time. So I wanted to give you two weeks to kind of prepare for the Chapter 4. And then we'll finish the last uh, slides on the chapter 3. But because I'm going to be hopefully setting up this channel, I'm going to be doing a channel, a YouTube channel on eschatology. And I would like to set it up not next week, but the next. i got a few things to get. I wanted to kind of wet your whistle on it and uh, just let you know what I'll be doing. As I was rehabbing my knee to let you know the backstory behind this, I would put on uh, YouTube eschatology debates and I was really open-minded to hear what these men had to say, and I was really disappointed in the quality of what was being presented. For example, let me just give you one example. I'll be addressing it today. There's a man, he's a young guy, he's probably in his 20s, and he's a professor at a seminary that's a Wesleyan seminary. I think it's Asbury. And in his clip, it's called Seven Minute Seminary, and it's called Seedbed. And in it, he boldly states that we who believe in a pre-trib rapture are just crazy, that it's just absolutely not in the Bible. And in fact, he boldly asserts that the rapture is not taught in the Bible. Well, the problem with that, of course, is the Latin phrase rapturo is not in the Bible, but the Greek term harpazo is, being snatched up. So he's wrong. He gets Jesus' illustration about Noah wrong. He says it's about being evil. Well, Jesus says three things about the people in Noah's day. He says they were eating, drinking, and given in marriage. Jesus went to weddings, and he ate and he drank. So did Jesus sin? And those who prohibit marriage are teaching a doctrine of demons. So the point that Noah was making was not that it was, it's going to be as sinful in the future as it was in the days of Noah. That is true. It will be. But that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is life was going on as it always was in Noah's day, and then sudden destruction came upon them. And so that's his point. So in all things, this man was wrong, and he claimed that when it comes to the passage in Matthew 24, 40 through 41, where Jesus talks about at the coming of the Son of Man, you're going to have two in a field. One will be taken and the other left. He claimed that those who believe in the Left Behind series, and by the way, you shouldn't believe in the Left Behind series. You should believe in the Bible. But those who believe that, that you're left behind are deluded because the ones who are left behind are the ones who are blessed and the ones who are taken are taken in judgment. And because it was air all the way through, I thought, you know what, I'd like to address, this would be one of the issues I would be addressing on this YouTube channel. So I wanted to run it by you. My goal is to make these 40 minutes, these YouTube channels. And so someone could read, or I'm sorry, watch it for the first 20 in the morning and the next 20 maybe at dinner time or they're on the treadmill. And so anyway, that's what I want to do today. So I want to begin by talking about who is taken and who is left in Matthew 24, 41. And I want to show you evidence that you will never see. That I, I've looked at hundreds of videos now as I've been rehabbing my knee. I don't ever see any of this evidence out there. 
And so I want to run some of it by you so that we do get the data out there, and I'll start doing this on YouTube. So first of all, let's look at the passage. I'll read it to you. This is, and by the way, it's a little smaller because I'm going to be doing it on YouTube, and I want to be able to fit it, uh, more material on the screen. So I hope you can read that. Matthew 24, 36 through 41, Jesus said, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Now, the first thing I want to point out is the structure of this section. I want you to remember, and I actually have a whole message dedicated to interpreting the Olivet Discourse. But I want you to remember that in verse 36, there's a transition from what Jesus had said earlier in Matthew 24, verses 4 through 35. And we know that because notice in purple where it says, but of, the best rendering of that is actually now concerning. It's rendering two Greek terms, peri-day. Peri-day functions as a discourse marker. Now you might say, well, why do I care about a discourse marker? You should. Because in Greek, they don't have paragraph breaks. So the only way that you know that the author is going to a new section is by looking at a discourse marker. And so I can't tell you that I've not seen one video on eschatology that points out the discourse grammar that's inherent to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit given to the biblical author like Matthew. And we should because we want to be good readers of the text. If we want our theology to be derived by exegetical evidence from the scriptures rather than man's opinion, we have to know these things. And so the point of it is, look, is everyone aware of my diagram here? My diagram, this is a timeline on the bottom of the screen. The cross represents the first coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ, this would be the church age or the time of the Gentiles. My diagram here represents the last seven years. This would be the beginning, this would be the midpoint, and this is the end. That's Daniel's 70th week. That is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The coming is not on a single day. We know that because in Luke 17, 26, Luke talks about the days of Noah being just like the future days, plural, of the Son of Man. Jesus in Matthew 24, 37 says his parousia singular is just like the days of Noah. So the point is the parousia singular for coming is identical to the plurality of days in Luke 17, 26. And so the coming of the Son of Man is a complex event. It begins with Christ coming for the church. It ends with him coming with the church. And in between, the wrath of God is poured out. That's the way we should conceive of it. Now, I'll be proving that in various messages. So here's what I want you to see. Think about this. From Matthew 24, verses 4 through 35, Jesus is answering the second question of the disciples. What is the sign of your coming? Right? What are the signs of your coming? Now, what he's going to do is he's going to shift in verse 36, tipped off by the Perry day. Now concerning, he's going to answer the first question last. When will these things be? 
So when will these things be has to do with the entirety of the 70th week. So from Matthew 24, verse 4, all the way to verse 35, every sign he gives you is inside the 70th week of Daniel. Amen. Not, there's not one in the church age. Let's ask ourselves, in Matthew 24, verses 21 through 22, Jesus says that tribulation will come upon the world such as never occurred nor ever will. In fact, if those days not be cut short, no flesh would survive. The worst time period, that's what Jesus is describing, is the worst time period now in the church age? Was it in 70 AD? No. What's he describing the future seven years? Jesus says in Matthew 24, 15, so when you see the abomination that causes desolation, and then he even says, spoken by Daniel the prophet, and then parenthetically he says, let the reader understand. What's he bringing you to? He's bringing you to the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. Every timing indicator from Matthew 24, verses 4 through 35, are signs within the 70th week. But all of a sudden, he gets to the first question that they had asked, when will these things be, and what is the sign of your coming? He answered the second question, what is the sign? Verses 4 to 35, Perry day. Now concerning when will these things be, no one knows. No one knows. No one knows when this time period begins. You can't know. And that's how you make sense of the idea in the all of a discourse. Some things you, remember he says you can know when you see all these things, know that he is near. But that's all in verses 44 through 35. That's for those who live in this time period. But then all of a sudden when he switches now to verse 36, five different ways he'll say you can't know. No one knows. It's like a thief. It's like a master who's gone on a journey. So that's what he switched to. Now notice right after that he gives an analogy. In verse 37, the parousia, that's the technical term, again, filled up by the 70th week of Daniel, of the parousia of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. This professor in the seven-minute seminary that you can look at on YouTube says the point that Jesus is making is that the future days when Jesus comes will be as sinful as it was in the days of Noah. Is that Jesus' point? Well, let's see if Jesus points out something that's sinful. Well, he says that they were eating and drinking. You know, Jesus both ate and drank at weddings. Jesus, in Mark seven nineteen declares all food clean. Notice here, he talks about them marrying and giving in marriage. The Apostle Paul is very clear that those who prohibit marriage are teaching a doctrine of demons. And so certainly what Jesus is referring to is that life was going on as it always had. The people in Noah's day, all they knew was that there was, in their opinion, not mine, in their opinion, some goofball is building this big boat. And yes, he believes in this Yahweh, and they're just going to live their own lives. And so life went on. There was nothing in the skies to tip them off. There was no cloud to say, hey, maybe something's different now. There was nothing. They had the preaching of righteous Noah, and that's all they had. Guess what this generation has that you're amongst? Is there any sign to tip them off? Jesus says, a wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but none will be given to it except for the sign of Jonah. What's the point of the sign of Jonah? It's the resurrection. Can they look directly at the resurrection? No. Nope. Where do they get it? They get it through your preaching. What did the generation have in Noah's day? They had the preaching of Noah. What does the generation today have? The preaching that comes from you, the word of God. 
There's nothing else to tip them off. And so that's why it comes suddenly. It says they were doing life as it always was until that day Noah entered the ark. So Noah is removed. Noah is the, he and his family are the only righteous one in the earth and they're removed in the ark. So then what happened? They did not understand until the flood came and took them away. So they had no idea that this was about to come forth. Now, notice when it says the flood came and took them away. This man in the seven-minute seminary says, Aha! Look, it says the flood took them away. But when you extend that down to verse 40 into 41, that means the one who's taken must be the one who's taken in judgment because after all, the flood took them away. So if the flood took them away, then the being taken must be taken in judgment. And that's what he asserts very confidently. The problem with that is the term took is arrow, and the term taken here is parabambano. And if Matthew had wanted you to see the connection between those who were took away in the flood and judgment and those who were taken at the coming of the Son of Man, if they were to be the same, he'd use the same term, arrow. Yes, Eric. I have a question. Um, okay. They, uh, un, until the day that Noah entered the ark, in other words, when Noah entered the ark, all of the righteous people left. That's right. At that time. They, they were gone. Is that a, a precursor to the rapture, do you think? In other words, Absolutely it is. All of us will leave, and that would be during the you know, beginning, just before the seven-year tribulation. So. Yes, Eric, and I'm going to come to that. Okay. In fact, okay. I forget what slide it is, slide okay. six, but what I'll show you is from Luke 17. Jesus Excellent. uses two analogies, two precedents, to show okay. that the people of God are removed, then the wrath comes. He uses Noah, and he uses Lot. So he says, Noah's removed, the wrath comes. Lot is removed, and what happens? The wrath comes. Excellent. Excellent. And so then all of a sudden, you'll hear some guy in seven-minute seminary say, well, no, you've got to go through it. Well, let's see, are you going to go with Jesus' precedent or the guy at the Wesleyan College that says, no, you've got to go through it? Okay, that's my point that I'm bringing out, is we just have to read what the text says. So very good question. Yes, absolutely. The precedent in Scripture is that the people have got to removed, then the wrath comes. So then all we really have to debate about the timing of the rapture is, well, when does the wrath come? That's all we have to argue about. If the wrath is there at the beginning of the 70th week, well, you can't be there for that. You're going to be removed. Absolutely. Very good question. So what I want to do is I want to look at the terms taken and left. In fact, let me move on to this next slide. The next slide has the same material, but now I'm not focusing on the timeline. I want to focus on the terms. Notice the term took. The flood took those who were unrighteous away in Noah's day, that was the term arrow. Okay, that's what Matthew records under the inspiration of the Spirit. But notice the term for left, those who are left behind, which the man in Seven Minutes Seminary says that he thinks that those who are left are the ones who are saved. But the term that's used there is a feami. And it has to do with the last time it's used was in Matthew 23, 38. One chapter earlier where Jesus abandons the temple in judgment. In Matthew 23, 38, Jesus, after he excoriates the leadership of Israel, he says, your house is left, a feami, same term that's used here, desolate. 
it's abandoned in judgment. In fact, he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A messianic psalm from Psalm 118, one of the Hallel Psalms. Isn't it interesting then that Matthew 23, what does Matthew 23 end on? The coming of Jesus. Because he says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. What does Matthew 24 get into? The coming of the Lord. It's not 70 AD. The last issue in Matthew 23 as Jesus leaves the temple is that temple is desolate and they won't see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the topic at hand, the coming of the Lord in Matthew 24. That's why when they ask the question, it's not about 70 AD. When will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming? Okay, but notice here then that those who are left cannot possibly be those who are saved because they're being abandoned to judgment just like the temple was. And what's more, Jesus says two days later, remember in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, that's Tuesday. That's one day after what we refer to as triumphal entry, which is on the 10th day of Nisan on a Monday. Tuesday is the Olivet Discourse. Two days later, Jesus is in the upper room And he's consoling his disciples because he's going to be departing to the Heavenly Father. And he says to them, I will not abandon you as orphans or leave you as orphans. The same term that's used here for left. Now, would it be in any way appropriate for Jesus to use a term for abandonment and the abandonment of the temple to destruction for his elect, for believers? Well, of course not. In fact, in Matthew, the term left or aphemi, it can be used for the release of sins, but it's always the release of something. And when it comes to persons, it's always their abandonment. They're being left. That's the idea. And of course, that's how it's being used the very last time before this instance in Matthew 24, 40, in Matthew 23, 38, for the abandonment of the temple. Now, let's look at the term taken. The term taken there is paralambano. Many of you have heard of a paralegal, paramilitary, parachute. It's something that you take alongside yourself. The paramilitary comes alongside the regular military. In the same way, para is prefixed along lambano, which means to receive. So para means to receive alongside. Lambano receive, para alongside. And in Matthew, it always has to do with personal accompaniment. So isn't it beautiful then that this is used, for example, in Matthew 20, 17, Paralambano, for Jesus taking aside his disciples. It's tender. It's something that I would do. Sorry about the plosive there, Bob. It's something that I would do with my son to the store. I would say, do you want to go with? And I know I'm dangling a modifier, but we do that in Minnesota. Do you want to go with me to the store? It's this idea that I'm going to take him along my side and I'm going with my son to the store. In the same way, Jesus is taking his disciples. In fact, in John 14, 3, two days later after the Olivet Discourse, Jesus in the upper room says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I go, remember he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, remember in his Father's house, I will come again and paralambano receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. What is Jesus going to do? He's going to come again. Where is he going to take his people? He's going to take them to heaven. He's going to take them to heaven. That's a rapture passage in John 14, 1 through 3. 
because he's coming again and he's going to receive them to himself and he's going to take them where? To his heavenly father's home. And what term does he use? Paralambano, the very same term that's used here in Matthew 24, 40. So what are the odds that Jesus is using the term paralambano that's used for the tender taking alongside of his disciples to himself in personal accompaniment? It's used for the receiving to himself as disciples at the rapture in John 14, 3. What are the odds that it's being used for judgment here? And if it is, then we've lost control of language. We really can read anything we want into these words, in my opinion. And so, of course, the one who was taken is the one who was received to the Lord Jesus, just like Noah was received into the ark prior to the wrath of God coming. And those who are left are those who are abandoned to judgment, just like the temple was in Matthew 23, 38. They're abandoned to judgment. That's the issue. Okay, so with that, let me go to this Ephemi versus Paralambano and I want to show you how John uses this text. Whoops, I'll start with John 14, 3. Remember, this is where Jesus is in the upper room. He's preparing his disciples for his departure. So this is on Thursday night. This is when he celebrates the Lord's Supper. By the way, some people say, well, if Jesus really celebrated the Lord's Supper, shouldn't have that been on Friday? Because Friday would have been Passover. The way you can explain both Thursday and Friday is being a genuine Passover, is there was a different way of reckoning days, whether you were Galilean or whether you were Judean. The Galileans reckoned the time, I believe, from sunset to sunset. That's the beginning of the day. When is the beginning of a new day? Sunset. But in Judea, it's at sunrise, or it's one or the other. So that's how you, you can explain that Jesus really did have a genuine Lord's Supper, that is a genuine Passover feast with his disciples, but he's still the Passover lamb according to the Judean reckoning on Friday. He dies at the very time that the Paschal lamb was slain. So Jesus is celebrating the Passover and he's comforting them. He says, I go and prepare a place for you. He says, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also. Notice the receive, that's parlambano, same term as being taken in Matthew 24, 40 through 41. And notice here, let's look at Ephemi. Matthew, or excuse me, John 14, 18, in the same discourse, he says, I will not leave Ephemi, you as orphans, I will come to you. Again, Ephemi is the same term used for left in Matthew 24, 40 through 41. So why do we have the man in seven-minute seminary saying, hey, the one that's left is the one who is blessed, and the one who was taken, Paralambano, is the one who was judged. That would, to be seem, that would seem to be very odd for Jesus to use a completely opposite two days later. All right, now, let's keep going. We'll go to Matthew because Matthew, obviously, we want to interpret Matthew with Matthew. Let's look at how left or a family is used. Matthew 4.20, here you have Peter and Andrew being called by the Lord to discipleship. It says, immediately they, a family, they left their nets and followed him. They abandoned their nets. They abandoned them. They're out of there. They're, they're going to do something different. They're becoming apostles. Matthew 4.22, this is, by the way, James and John. They immediately left a family, the boat, and their father and followed him. They abandoned their former life to follow Jesus. That's a family, the same term used for left behind in Matthew 24, 40 through 41. 
Let's keep going. Here's Matthew 23, 13. So this is one chapter before the Olivet Discourse. And what does Jesus say of the Pharisees and the religious leaders? He says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off a family, the kingdom of heaven, from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew 24, 4. I want to show you a connection. I'm sorry, not Matthew 24, 4, Matthew 23, 4. I want to show you a connection that we should see in Matthew 23. Again, the term for shut off is a family. In a sense, those who have listened to the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Israel, they have released them from the kingdom of God. They've released them from the kingdom of God. That's the term. That, that's how I would render it. Now, why? Notice in Matthew 23, 4. What do the religious leaders of Israel do? He says, they tie up heavy burdens on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. The term for tie up there, desmuo, isn't that interesting? It's really the opposite of this. So think about what Jesus is saying in Matthew 23, 4 is you tie up people with heavy burdens that they can't lift, nor do you help them with even one finger. But when it comes to the kingdom, you affame, you release them so they never have any part of it. You tie heavy burdens, but you release them from the kingdom. Or they should be tying them to the kingdom and releasing them from the burdens. Wow. That's the opposite. And that's why Jesus is so angry. These were wicked shepherds who let their flock go to hell. And that's why Jesus says, your house has left you a family. It's abandoned. And you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let me make a connection. Go back to the book of Ezekiel. Just jot chapters 10 and 11 down. God is sick of the idolatry of Israel. Do you know what? He abandons the Shekinah glory of the temple. And do you know where he goes? He goes to the Mount of Olives. And then he ascends up. Where does Jesus, the glory of the Father, go? He goes from the temple to the Mount of Olives, where eventually he ends up ascending up. Why? Because they will not see the glory of God again in Christ Jesus until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. It's the same pattern. And we have to be seeing these things as careful readers. So, of course, a family is not a good thing here. Yes, Scott. I'm sorry, elaborate on blessed is he who... Uh, elaborate on uh, the day that they say blessed is he who came... In the name yeah, of that Lord. comes from a Hallel psalm. And I believe that those Hallel psalms were dedicated or, or written at the rededication of the temple after the, the 70 AD destruction, or the, not the 70 AD, the 586 BC destruction. So we're talking about 516 BC. Remember Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. And so the idea is that as people were coming to celebrate, they're singing these praises to Yahweh. But this phrase, blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh, is extended ultimately to the Messiah because in Isaiah 59, he is the deliverer who comes to Zion. He is, in fact, it, all, it goes actually all the way back to Genesis 49.10. Remember the, the promise to Judah that the one who comes uh, is going to be the one that the nations owe their homage to? 
the one who comes goes all the way back to Genesis 49. It's reiterated in Isaiah 59, and then it's borrowed in Psalm 118 as these writers write it under the inspiration of the Spirit. And so it's messianic. And so it's ultimately about the Messiah coming to his temple one day. And so that's how it's properly understood in its fulfillment. Yes, there may be pilgrims who go that are believers in Yahweh, but ultimately it's extended to the Messiah who is Yahweh. And so that's why it's a messianic psalm. And that's why Jesus, when he says, you will not see me again until you come to faith. By the way, when does Israel come to faith? At the end of the 70th week of Daniel. For all those preterists out there, 70 AD, they think everything that in Matthew 24 happened in 70 AD. When did Israel, when, when did Israel come to faith in the Messiah? When was Israel restored? Well, they weren't. And isn't that a little anti-Semitic? Think about, is the blessed hope really the destruction of those pesky Jews in 70 AD? Or is it the coming of Jesus Christ for the resurrection? I think you've got to be a sick widget to say, hey, my blessed hope is the destruction of 1.1 million Jews in 70 AD. Boy, that's great news. God is no longer faithful to his promises. The Lord Jesus isn't coming again. And then they'll, they'll browbeat you because you take seriously what the scriptures are actually saying. Can you, can you imagine that? By the way, in the book of Revelation, remember Jesus describes in Matthew 24 the worst time period ever. Well, Revelation talks about that time period because a third of the waters turned to blood. When did that happen in 70 AD? Ask the preterist. When did it happen in 70 AD that the third of the waters turned to blood? You think Josephus may have made a note of that. When did a third of the people die because of a locust demonic army? When were the demons let out of the abyss? When did that happen? Of course, it didn't happen. Remember, you can only have one worse time period, and it's not 70 AD. Even by numerical standards, yes, we lose 1.1 million Jews in 70 AD. It's horrific, but there are 6 million who die in the Holocaust in World War II. Isn't that worse? And so the people that believe in 70 AD, dear ones, this is evil. And I'll tell you why this is, I'm so passionate about it. When I was a young man, I didn't have time to understand all these things. I was an airline pilot. So I'm reading Matthew 24. I can't understand that. I go to one of my favorite teachers, R.C. Sproul. And you know what he is? I don't know. He's a partial preterist. And I was so disturbed by thinking that the coming of Christ could be fulfilled in 70 AD. I considered whether I should even believe. Because if all we have to look forward to is what happened in 70 AD, wow, what a blessed hope. (laughs) Every day, do you get up in the morning and say, boy, I'm really glad the Jews were smitten in 70 AD. What a blessed day. Or do you say, you know, things are pretty bad. My, My leg isn't good. My finances aren't good. Whatever it is in your life, my health isn't good. My kids aren't good or whatever is going on. And you say, you know what? I can't wait for the Lord to come. You look at your society and the evil nature of there being no justice. Is that all solved in 70 AD? Or is it when the Lord Jesus Christ bodily returns, as it says in Zechariah 14, and sets his foot on the Mount of Olives and destroys the enemies that surround Jerusalem? And then ironically in Zechariah 14, the nations will flow up year after year to give honor to Yahweh. Is that happening now? So then why do they say it happened in 70 AD? And so why do... People like R.C. Sproul, he sold it to me, by the way. I'm guilty of this. But I'm passionate about this because I think it's a faith destroyer. I think part of the gospel is not just that Christ died for our sins. He certainly did. And it's critical because without that, we don't become partakers of the kingdom. But all of this is going somewhere. 
And if you and I were just to be so much worm food in the ground, what's the point of the forgiveness of sins? If you cease to exist, or all that you have to look forward to is something that happened in 70 AD, what's the point of it? That's why this all matters. So sorry, this is why I'm I'm so fired up about it. So let's be those who read what the text says. So, aphemi, they are shut off from the kingdom. Aphemi, why would that term be used then? For those who are saved in Matthew 24, 40 through 41. Let's move on. Matthew 23, thir- thir- 23 this is the last usage of a family before Jesus uses it in our debated text, Matthew 24, 40 through 41. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected a family. They have abandoned the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without a family abandoning the others. The leadership of Israel abandoned the weightier matters of the law. Now we come to, I'm sorry, this is the last usage here, I should say, I should have known that. Matthew 23, 38, Jesus says, Behold, your house is a family, it's being left to you desolate. So why would Jesus use a term for the abandonment of the temple to judgment for the salvation of his people one chapter later? It's irrational. And yet this man, this young man, he's a professor at a Wesleyan university. And he berates those who believe in the quote-unquote left-behind series. But does he show you any of these texts? No, he never will. He'll give you his opinion, which is uneducated according to the scriptures. And that's what was so sad to me, because the truth is far greater than his distortion. Matthew 1.20, let's look at Paralambano, how that's used. Matthew 1.20, it says, But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to Paralambano to take Mary as your wife. Do you see the tender personal accompaniment? That's exactly the idea of Christ coming for his bride and receiving us to himself as he uses it in John 14.3. So then why would this term be used in Matthew 24, 40 through 41, is a term of judgment, as the young seminarian professor pointed out. Matthew 2, 13 through 14, says, Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take Paralambano, the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and Paralambano, he took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Notice the salvation here of the child and the mother, tender personal accompaniment, this loving care that Joseph has for them. Paralambano receives them to himself and he leaves. Let's go to Matthew 20, 17. As Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he paralambano. By the way, paralambano here is both took and aside. And that shows you some of the difficulty of rendering one Greek term into the English. Here you have to use two. He took aside the 12 disciples, paralambano, by themselves. And on the way, he said to them, personal accompaniment, they are with him. Again, we get to Matthew 24, 40 through 41. And the seminarian professor has it all backwards. The one who's taken Paralambano, he says, are taken in judgment. But the ones who are left are the ones who are left for salvation. What is the truth? The truth is that those who are left, a family, are abandoned to judgment just like the temple. And those who are taken 
are taken in salvation. Where are they taken? They're taken to heaven. Isn't that what Jesus says? I'll receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Well, that's exactly right. So let's look at three rapture passages that should be thought of together. Because one gives you the location, another gives you the timing, and the other one gives you the mode of the, of the removal of God's people. Let's begin with the first one. John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This actually may be better rendered, I think, uh, where he says, You believe in God. Believe in me. Why? Because Jesus, God, he's worthy of worship. Verse 2, he says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. The term for dwelling places there, the rooms, is Monet. One of the debates in this passage is where is the Father's house? Do you know I heard one post-tribulationalist claim that the Father's house was the earthly temple? It was the earthly temple. So Jesus is ascending to the earthly temple? Does Jesus, as he says later in John 14, send the Spirit from the earthly temple? The same earthly temple that he's abandoned to judgment? Where is the Father's house? Well, of course, it's in heaven. Let me prove that to you. Turn your Bibles to John 14, 12. There's four usages of this idea of where Jesus is going to go to be with the Father in the Father's house. We have two of them in this passage. So let's look outside of it. John 14, 12. John 14, 12. Notice Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. So that means Jesus is going to the earthly temple, and therefore you're going to do greater works? No, he's going to heaven in his ascension, from where he will send the Spirit. In fact, notice in John 14, 28, turn 16 verses later. He says, You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Where is Jesus going? To the Father's house? It's in heaven. Now, let's read the rest of the text then. He says, In my Father's house there are many rooms, if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. Now notice verse 3. says, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive, that's paralambano, receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. So let me give you four points that I think are necessary. One, where he's going to prepare a place for them is the Father's house in heaven from where he will one day send the Spirit. Second big point is the many rooms. Notice he talks about the Father's house having many rooms. The many rooms is, of course, a reference to the new Jerusalem. That's where heaven is. Now notice number three. He says, I will, what in bold, I will come again. Now why is that important? Because some scholars will say, well, this is just when you and I die, and we go to be with the Lord. You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But is that what the text is saying? If that's true, then why does Jesus say, I will come again? Urkamai, a term that's often used for his second coming. Well, I don't think it makes any sense to say that you and I are dying, going to be with him. That's true. But that's not Jesus' point. This is about him coming to receive us to himself. 
Now, where are we going to be? Well, we're going to be where he is. Well, where was he going? Well, he's going to the Father's house in heaven. So when he receives us, Parlambano in the rapture, he's taking us to the Father's house that is in heaven. Well, that sounds like escape theology. Remember, we're criticized for having escape theology. By the way, all of Christianity is escape theology. You're escaping the wrath of God. I want to escape. Why is this a problem for post-tribulationalists? Because remember, they believe the rapture happens at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. And when people are caught up to meet the Lord in the air, they believe that they just return from meeting the Lord in the air, they return to earth. And then Jesus sets up the kingdom if they happen to be premillennialists. It gets worse if they're amillennialists. Here's the problem. Then when are they received to heaven in the Father's house? You see, in a post-tribulationalist eschatology, there's no room for that. Isn't it ironic? John 14, 1 through 3 is a rapture passage. It's not about the intermediate state, you dying and going to be with the Lord. That is true. If you die tonight, God forbid, you will go to be with the Lord. But that's not the point of him coming again and receiving you to himself. That's a rapture passage. Yes, Brian. You're a seven-minute guy who said that it's an earthly, that Jesus went to the earthly temple. Yes. Now, this is a different false teacher. Oh, different false teacher. Yeah, okay. sorry. I'm I blending my videos together. Okay. Right. So in, uh, in Bob's teaching in Luke-Acts, we learn that Jesus is continually going up, up, up to Jerusalem, then up, up, up into heaven. Yes. And also with the empty tomb, uh, uh, or after Jesus' ascension, didn't an angel say, why are you looking here? He will come back in, in the like same manner. way he went. He ascended bodily to heaven. He's returning bodily to earth. Zechariah 14.4 makes that very point that the Messiah, as he fights against the nations surrounding Jerusalem, will set his feet on the Mount of Olives, just as it says in Acts, I think, 111. He destroys the enemies. And then 12 verses later, the nations are being forced to go worship the Lord. It says, at, it says the survivors of those who survived the, uh, they were of the armies surrounding Jerusalem, they'll be forced year after year to go up and worship the Lord at the the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, why is that important? Because it shows that there will be some unbelievers that actually survive that final battle. And that's who ends up populating the kingdom. So a lot of people say, well, no, only unbelievers, or excuse me, only believers enter the kingdom. No unbelievers will. Well, that's not what Zechariah 14 says. And that's a big issue with some amillennialists because they claim, hey, you have no one to populate the kingdom, the millennial kingdom with. Sam Storms claims that. Well, Sam Storms is at odds with Zechariah 14. My point in saying this is, let's look at the preterists. They say all this happened in 70 A.D. 70 A.D. led to the destruction of Jerusalem, not its salvation. There was destruction only, right? 1.1 million Jews died, and where's Jesus descending to the Mount of Olives, destroying all of the armies, and then forcing them up year after year to go worship the Lord at the Feast of Tabernacles? Anyone notice that going on from 70 A.D. till today? The nations are right now going up to worship the Lord as he reigns in Zion. That's what happens at the end of the 70th week of Daniel. So that's not 70 AD. So we just have to read what the text says. Isn't it beautiful being a pre-trib, pre-millennial? You just read what the text says. And that's what it says. 
but you have to read the text. And that's what's dismaying to me is we have to be people of the text. Notice what it says here in Matthew 24, 40 through 41. If we have the location alluded to in the rapture here, the Father's house in heaven, here's the timing of it. Remember, Jesus just now is describing, verse 36, the beginning of the 70th week. When will these things be? Now concerning, no one knows. Then he uses the analogy of Noah. They had no idea. In fact, he says now in Matthew 24, 40 through 41, it's so sudden, there will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two men will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. What's the taken? Paralambano, same term used here. Same term. So where are they going to be taken? Well, to the Father's house. Why? Because the wrath of God will be poured out in the 70th week of Daniel, and they're being removed just like Noah was, and just like Lot was. That's why. But who is left? Those who are abandoned to judgment, those who didn't believe. It's very simple once you actually look at it. It's beautiful if we look at the data. So here you have the location. Here you have the timing. It's the beginning of the 70th week. That's what he's talking about in this section. Now, let's look at the mode of removal. This is 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. Notice it says, for the Lord himself. Very important. Stop there. Himself is what we call an adjectival intensive. I've mentioned this numerous times. That means it's not some surrogate that goes for the Lord. As I always like to joke, it's not some stunt double. You know, one of those stand-ins that does the difficult, you know, tricks in the movie. And then the, the guy with all the glamour and the good hair, he gets, you know, the credit. No, that's the Lord himself who's going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Stop there. In 70 AD, preterists say, well, it's not really the Lord himself that came. It was just kind of a shadowy judgment. It was just kind of a spiritual thing. Well, that's not what this text is saying. This is the Lord himself with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be what? Caught up. There's harpazo. We'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. This is the mode. We're going to be snatched up. The same term was used for Philip being snatched in Acts chapter 8 from one location to another. So we're going to be snatched up to meet the Lord in the air. When does it happen? The beginning of the 70th week. And where do we go? We go to the Father's house. All three of these are clearly rapture passages. Now, you might say to me, hey, Eric, if in fact it's true that we're going to be snatched up, we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and we end up going to heaven, and in fact we're not going to be here for the wrath of God, that the people who are a family abandoned, where do we see that in Scripture clearly taught, that we're not going to be partakers of this wrath? Jesus couldn't be any clearer. He gives a precedent in Scripture, which is two men, Noah and Lot. Listen to what he says, Luke 17, 26 through 30. He says, and just as it happened in the days of Noah, sound familiar with Matthew 24, 37? So it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. Stop there. Does everyone see the plural days? Does everyone see that? Everyone look on the screen, see the term days of the Son of Man? That's plural. That is synonymous with the term parousia, the singular term for coming, in Matthew 24, 37. So one of the things that the post-tribulationalist will rib you about is that they say, well, I believe in just one coming on one day where you believe in many days. Well, Luke 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said that the parousia is synonymous with the days plural of the Son of Man. It's a complex event. So says the scriptures themselves. Now, again, what were the people in Noah's day doing? They were eating, they were drinking and marrying, nothing sinful about that. Life was going on as it always was. They were given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking. Now, who was? The people of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were buying. Any of that immoral? Where in the scriptures under the new covenant does it say, thou shall not buy or sell or drink? Jesus declares all foods clean. So they were doing life as it always was. They were planting and they were building. Verse 29, but on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. On what day? The day that Lot the righteous went out. So Noah and his family were removed. The wrath came. Lot and his family were removed, and the wrath came. The precedent in Scripture, Noah's removed, God's wrath comes. Lot is removed, God's wrath comes. So why are there so many today that say, well, no, you're going to go through the wrath. You're going to go through tribulation. Don't you know? Don't you realize that you're just an escapist if you believe what Jesus says as he leaves us with this great precedent? Where's the precedent that you go through some of the wrath? Show me that text in Scripture. And you know what people will often point to, or point to is they'll do a category error. They'll point to Acts 14.22 where Paul says, through many trials and tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. But that's during the church age. That's the point. It's a category error. That's during the church age. Certainly we're going to have trials and tribulations now, but in the 70th week of Daniel, which is the very wrath of God, the day of the Lord, you're removed for that. So don't take a church-age passage about what happens now and apply it to the 70th week of Daniel. Otherwise, you have a contradiction. Do you know that you can't go through God's wrath and not go through God's wrath at the same time in the same relationship? Right? That would be a contradiction. And Jesus is saying, you won't go through it. You're going to be removed before the wrath comes. Let me give you one more promise. Revelation 3.10 Here's a promise, by the way, not just to the people at Philadelphia, but as it says seven times to the churches, seven times. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3.10. Here Jesus says, because you have kept tereo, that's the term, the word of my perseverance, I will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Let's begin with the promise, keep from. There was a famous post-tribulational scholar named Robert Gundry who claimed that the verb terao, keep, and the preposition ek could mean preserved through and be taken out at the end. And he was rightly rebuked by a British scholar named Thomas Edgar who said, that is a lot for one verb and preposition to mean. How many of you in here know of a verb and a preposition that mean to be preserved through in order to be taken out at the end? No, do you know what kept from means? It means to be preserved on the outside. If you're kept from falling in a pit, does that mean you fell in the pit, but then somehow you were rescued? No, you never fell into it. How about kept from falling into an elevator shaft? It means you never enter into the elevator shaft. That's how it's used. Let me prove that to you. The only other time in the entire New Testament the same verb and preposition are used 
is used in John 17, 15. Now, don't get confused when he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. That's Jesus' prayer. This is not an eschatological text. It's a text about the church age. Jesus is not praying that God would immediately remove his people when they come to faith in the church age, but he is praying that they would be kept from the evil one. Same verb, same preposition as up here. So why am I pointing to this? Well, think of it. When you came to faith, you had a domain transfer. You went from the kingdom of Satan, the domain of Satan, to the kingdom of the beloved son. That's what Bob has been showing us, that that's true spiritual warfare. What we need is a domain transfer. Colossians 1, 13 through 14, we were delivered from Satan to Christ's domain. And what Jesus is praying is that believers will always be kept from the domain of Satan. Oh, we may be tempted. We may, may even fail. But we will never enter into the kingdom of Satan again. Turn your Bibles to 1 John 5, 18 through 19. 1 John 5, 18 through 19. First John 5, 18 through 19. First John 5.18, notice he says, We know that no one is born of God's sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So the evil one does not touch him. We never go from Christ's camp back to Satan's camp. Now notice verse 19, he says, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The world there is humans in rebellion against God outside of faith in Christ. So the whole world is in Satan's camp. But you and I, when we convert and come to faith in Christ, we are forever in Christ's camp. And what Jesus is praying for, that the Father answers, is that we will always be preserved on the outside. So notice, we never enter into his camp again. In the same way, you're going to be preserved on the outside of what? The hour of testing. Notice, it's not just the testing itself, it's the hour of testing. You can't even be there during the time period. So if a teacher said, hey, if you get A's all year long in your math quizzes, I will keep you from the hour of the final test. Do you think you have to show up and still take it, but they'll preserve you through it? No, it means you're not showing up for it, are you? Now, some will say, well, this is just a local testing. It doesn't apply. Well, it says the hour of testing, the perosmos, that's about to come upon the whole world. Notice the phrase, the whole world. That's an allusion back to the universal judgment in Isaiah 13. Don't turn to it, but I'll read a little bit of Isaiah 13. It's a universal judgment in the future day of the Lord. He says, this is uh, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, Isaiah 39, cruel and fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and I will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. That's all borrowed by Christ, by the way, in the Olivet Discourse. Verse 11, listen to this. This is Isaiah 13, 11. Thus I will punish the whole world and the wicked for their iniquity. The term whole world there, tabel, means the whole inhabited world. In Isaiah 13, 11, he could have used gase, which is simply the term for land or I'm sorry, Eretz is in, in Hebrew, but instead he uses Tabel, which is the whole inhabited world. That's exactly John's point. This is the day of the Lord, and you're going to be kept from it. 
And notice the purpose of it is to what? To test those who dwell on the earth. That phrase occurs 11 times in Revelation. It always refers to the unregenerate. So, dear ones, well, yes, Rich. Yeah, I, I think that anybody who believes in preterism is a heretic. I you, do too. I you full can't preterism believe that heresy. way. I, I don't know what R.C. Sproul was thinking about. I mean, yeah, I respect the guy sad. and his gospel teaching, but the guy is three sheets to the wind when it comes to eschatology. I, I know, and I love him in other things, but you're right. But I think there's some things we need to grapple with here, and, and it's, yes. it's a combination. It's uh, Matthew 24, verse um, 9. Um, now, you and I agree that Jesus is outlining Daniel's 70th week in Matthew 24 absolutely 100% right with you. Yep. Uh, verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Yeah, just for the sake of time, okay, let's stop right there. But, but that coincides with the, with the fifth seal. Right, so let's back up, let's back up. Is that inside or outside the 70th week of Daniel? That's inside Daniel's 70th week. Exactly. That's exactly right. That's inside the 70th week of Daniel. What does he switch to talk about in verse 36? He talks about when will Daniel's 70th week come. Are you with me? Well, check and this that's out. that's when they're so taken when you and take, others are left. When you take verse 9... Yep, so those are people who you, are there during the 70th week, but we won't be there for that. And you right? understand Revelation chapter 7... There's this great multitude standing on the sea of glass, chapter 7, from yep. every tribe, quick, Rich, tongue, Rich, and those language. Those are the ones who are coming out, it says, but, of the great tribulation. But let, this me, is let me finish 7, this, though. There, there's okay. a great multitude standing on the sea of glass. Yep. Nobody can count. These aren't Jews. These are every tribe, tongue, and language. Yep. Standing on the sea of glass, and they're praising the Lord. They're the ones that were taken out from underneath the altar, because there was a few of them. And then they grew so great, they were taken out from underneath the altar and put on the sea of glass, because there was yep. just a great multitude. And uh, let's see, I think one of the angels said to um, John, who are these people? And he said, I don't, sir, you or know, you, know. you yeah. tell me. I don't, I don't know who these guys are. Well, they come out of the great tribulation, and they've washed their robes. What, what version do you have right there? What uh, English it's, version? It's New King James. Yeah, that's not a good rendering. It's literally, these are the ones who are coming out, because it's a present tense participle. What's very interesting, if that was a reference to the rapture as the pre-wrath proponents claim, you would have a once a punctiliar issue. It happens once in the past, not something that's ongoing action through the tribulation period. So what's being depicted is during the 70th week, there will be people who come to faith and they will be martyred and put to death. And that's how they are coming out of the great tribulation. And that's why it's in the present tense. The present tense, in, in Greek, they have what's called action art. And so it's not just whether it happened in the past, it's happening in the present or happening in the future. The focus of it is whether it's ongoing action or whether it's punctiliar, it happened once and for all. In verse 14 of Revelation 7, it's a present tense participle which has to do with ongoing action. They continuously keep coming from the tribulation period as they're being martyred. So what you're doing is you're confusing what's happening in the 70th week of Daniel with what's being referred to here at the very beginning of it. And that's why we have to look at the discourse markers. That's why I'm, I'm so big on Perry Day. Because remember, he's just answered from verse 4 to verse 35, which verse 9, which you cited, is in. He's talking about the signs. And there will be believers who are living during that time period who need to know exactly what's going on during this time period because they need to persevere to the end. So, it's written for everybody. The church, it's written for 
It's written for everybody. So, exactly, but I, I can look at it and say, boy, God is faithful to his promises. Right? Okay, but, but check this out. So, verse 9, of, again, I think goes along with, with the, the fifth seal. You know, they're going to turn you over to persecution. Absolutely, it does. I agree with you. In verse 13, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. I believe he's talking to the church. No, no. So what he's done, let me just read, run you through it. So from Matthew 24, 4, let's look at this, this scheme right here. Let's look at the, the, the page. From Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus begins answering what are the signs. From verse 4 to verse 8, he brings you for the first three and a half. Now, how do I know that? Because he says these are the beginning of birth pangs, Odin. Technical term for the day of the Lord, the beginning of it. Verse 9, he begins with the great tribulation. From verse 9... All the way to verse 14, he brings you through the great tribulation. By way of recapitulation, he brings you back to the midpoint, verse 15. So when you see the abomination that causes desolation, written by Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. From verse 15 all the way to verse 35, he brings you through the rest of it again. Now in verse 36, he answers the first question, when will these things be? Perry day. Now concerning the day and the hour, now is the beginning. No one knows. So if you're living during that time period, yes, you will. if you don't believe in Jesus Christ and you happen to come to faith, you will be martyred more than likely by the Antichrist as depicted in Revelation 7.14. You will be the ones who constantly are coming out of the Great Tribulation. Not a once and for all event like the rapture, but continuously martyred. Yes. Yeah, so I'm sorry, we just got to close. Yeah. He made a point about a year or so ago. He was teaching on these great things. He says... The time of the end is going to be a great hardening where men are not going to repent. Instead, they're going to raise their fists to God out of disobedience and anger. They're going to know from whence these things are happening. And instead of repenting, they're going to blaspheme God. So the, the great number that's sitting, that's up in heaven and standing on the sea of glass, yeah, that's the church because it, it can't be the revival because it's going to be a time of great hardening. So the tribulation saints, the great multitude of the tribulation saints is a fallacy because there's going to be a great hardening. The end times is a great hardening. Now, there still will be people who come to faith. In fact, the gospel is even preached by an angel. There's an angel that preaches the gospel. There will be people who come to faith. That is how gracious God is even during that time period. In fact, that's why in, when we get to Revelation chapter 20, verse 4, the answer is, what about those who died? because of the Antichrist persecution. And that's why it specifies those who are beheaded because of their testimony in Christ will be raised. Well, why does he specify only those who are beheaded in Matthew, excuse me, in Revelation 20, verse 4? Because the answer has to be what happened to those who were martyred at the fifth seal in Revelation 7, 14 that happened later as they're coming out of the Great Tribulation. Well, what happens at the end is that they're going to be raised too and they're part of the first resurrection. So, I'm sorry that we have to disagree with this, but we're short on time here, and I'll just close in prayer. But I hope you guys, everyone sees, the big point I want you to take away today is the rapture is real, that being taken is taken in salvation, not judgment. And those who are left are left to judgment. And those who say otherwise are contradicting the clear teaching of Scripture. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these things. We thank you for the clarity that you give to us in Scripture. We pray for Bob now as he's going to be teaching us the word of God. We pray, Lord, that we would be those who hear and understand. We pray that we'd also be not just hearers of the word, but doers who live lives that are pleasing to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.